Thank you, Nima. I do invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open them up to Ephesians. We're going to spend most of our time there this morning. Uh, if you don't have one in our need of one, there's one hopefully in uh, kind of the pew rack of those chairs in front of you. I would invite you to grab one. Um, before we get into this morning's text, why don't you, you go to the, the Lord in a word of prayer with me. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to gather here this morning as your people. Lord, I pray that you would, as we just consider your word right now, Lord, I pray that you would use it um, to shape us, to shape our lives. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning through your holy, your eternal, and your true word, Lord. And I pray you would write it on our hearts. We love you, and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, if you spent much time with me, you know that I am right-handed. Virtually everything I do is right-handed, with one exception. There's one thing I do with my left hand. It's play pool. Play pool. I, play, I shoot a pool cue with my left hand. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that is... I didn't discover this until I was like 12 years old, and I saw my right-handed friends play pool. And I was like, whoa, hold up a second. I've been doing this wrong the whole time? The reason I play a pool with my left hand is because growing up, we had a pool table in our basement. And I learned to play pool by watching my older brother, who actually is right-handed as well, and plays pool with his left hand. And when I discovered that I was playing pool with my left hand, I asked my older brother, Eric, I said, Eric, I know you play pool the same way I play pool because I learned how to play pool from you. Why do we use our left hand? Nobody else in our family is left-handed. He said, because an older neighbor taught him how to play pool with his left hand because he was left-handed, right? So as he learned to play pool, he did so by imitating an older neighbor. As I learned how to play pool, I did so by imitating him. Thus, I play pool with my left hand. See, really, if you think of life as learners, as we go throughout this world, we are shaped and formed through imitation, right? Think of what you do and how you learned how to do it. Odds are you simply imitated somebody else, whether it is language acquisition, the way that we speak, imitating other people who speak. Maybe it's the way we drive a car. My mom, when she drives a car, she rocks back and forth. I remember growing up being like, Mom, why do you always rock back and forth? You, you, you look at her sisters, and she, they all drive the car rocking back and forth. <laughs> like, is there something that I'm missing? They learned how to do that because they watched their parents drive the car rocking back and forth. It's a habit. They formed it by imitating their parents. Much of what we do, shooting a jump shot, is formed through imitation. Prayer, folks, is no different. Prayer is no different. Odds are, if you were to listen to me pray, and then listen to my father pray, you would say, I know where Doug gets it. I know where Doug gets that expression. Because it's an expression that was shaped and formed in me by listening as a child in the living room to my father praying. Prayer is no different. We learn how to pray by imitating folks. 
Odds are, if you grew up reading the, new, the, the King James Version of the Bible, maybe going to a church that preached the, J, the King James Version of the Bible, your odds are your prayers are probably going to reflect the reading of the Bible that you grew up listening to, reading the, the prayers that you heard, right? This morning, what we have before us in Ephesians chapter 3 is a prayer. It's not the first prayer. As we walk through the book of Ephesians, this is not the first prayer of Paul, nor is it the only prayer of Paul in the New Testament. Paul prayed in chapter 1. We'll see him pray throughout the book as Paul instructs his church. And this is, this is just good pastoring. As Paul the pastor instructs, exhorts his church, he does so couching the entire instruction, the entire exposition in prayer. He teaches God's people who God is and he prays for them. He prays specifically, we'll see this morning, for the teaching he gives them. This is good pastoring. I think there's a temptation in our culture today to see a pastor like a CEO, like the leader of this organization who is involved in all these different activities. And oftentimes, and, and some of that is good, okay? Some of it, there's, God is doing great things to the church, many good things, right? But oftentimes there is a temptation to abandon the core things a pastor should be doing. Paul shows us this morning what those core things are. Teaching God's word to God's people and praying for those people. Again, another shameless plug for church membership. One of the things I carry around in my Bible is a, uh, is a Parkview East membership guide. Sort of notes and things like that. It's got names of folks who call Parkview East home. And I use this as a prayer guide to pray for you. This is what a pastor should do. And it's something that I'm learning to do, right? So I would encourage you if, you, if you go to Parkview East, you enter into a family of folks who covenant together, who, who commit to one another, and who pray for each other. The life that God has called us to is not a life he has called us to live and to walk in isolation. Hopefully you've seen that so far in our, in our study of Ephesians. That he doesn't just beam us up individually to heaven. He creates for himself a people. A community. We've seen him do this in Ephesians. Okay? This morning what we're going to see in this prayer as we walk through it, we'll see kind of two things. The first thing I think is the most obvious. We'll see sort of a pedagogical model for what it looks like to pray. Paul teaches us how to pray. As you read through his prayers, and there's wonderful resources. There's a, a great book on Paul's prayers by C.H. Spurgeon. There's another really, really good one by D.A. Carson that just walks through. It's basically different messages he's given on each of Paul's prayers in the New Testament. You learn so much from his prayers. One of the things, it serves as a pedagogical model. So it teaches us, as we watch the flow, as we read his prayer, we learn how to pray. We learn how to pray. But most importantly this morning, and what we'll spend most of our time looking at this morning, is that as we consider his prayer, it is a window for us into the truth of what God wants for us. And that is critical. 
absolutely key. We see by examining Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, a clear vision of what God wants for us. What God wants for you. We spend most, a good chunk of our time wondering, what is God's will for me? Right? And there are many things in our life that we, we take to the Lord and we ask, God, give me clarity. What, what, what job do you want me to pursue? What, what spouse would you have for me? What do you want my life to look like? Where should I live? Lots of questions that surround our life. We pray for clarity. God, show us, reveal to me your will for me. It's a, it's a great grace to us that God, through his word, shows us precisely what he wants for us. And we see it here this morning. So as we consider this, the first thing I want to point out is what is the basis for Paul's prayer? We see this in verses 14 through the first part of 16. And I just want to focus on kind of the first phrase there. For this reason, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. For this reason, I bow my knees before the power. What? is this reason. When you see that phrase in your Bible, when you see that phrase, it either points forward to something he's about to say or it points back to something he's already said. This phrase, in this instance, points back. You'll figure it out just as you keep reading. You'll see, okay, clearly this reason is a reason he's already established. We saw this last week. If you remember last week, the first part of chapter 3, most of our message was a digression. It was a digression. So when you see that for this reason, the first thing you should do is just jump back to the next verse. Okay? So if you jump back to verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. You can keep going back and back and back in chapter 3 and get all the way to verse 1, and you'll recognize that actually the reason isn't a reason that he says in chapter 3. It's a reason he said in chapters 1 and 2. How do you know that? Because it's the second time we read this verse. Remember, last week was all a digression. It was all a digression. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul starts off to pray and gets distracted, right? He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, for this reason, okay? So what Paul is telling us in, in chapter 3, verse 14, is he's actually getting back to what he had set out to do in chapter 3, verse 1, okay? So then to figure out what is the reason, you got to go back to chapter 1 and chapter 2, okay? This is the first basis for Paul's prayer for this reason. In chapter 1, Paul had established that God has blessed us richly in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. Paul focuses the first half of chapter 1 on who God is, what God has done for us through Christ. He moves on into chapter 2, and as he establishes who God is and what he has done, he drives it home to us personally in verses 1 through 11, as he tells us, as he tells us in chapter 2, if you just look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. So in chapter 2, Paul says, you who were once dead in your sins and your trespasses have now been made alive in Christ Jesus. That God in his great sovereign grace and mercy has brought us from death to life. 
This is the good news of the gospel, folks. And he does it by grace through faith. Not on our works or what we bring to the table, but it's strictly the result of his kindness and his goodness and his gracious plan for us throughout history. Moves on into chapter 2. And this is, we see that this, this gospel that God has saved us by, the way he has saved us, Yes, it individually is good news, but corporately there is a bigger picture going on of what God's doing. And really what he's doing is putting his grace on display to see how amazing it is. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is your predicament. This is my predicament. That we are separated because of our sin and the law of Moses from God and from each other. Separation and alienation. Verse 13. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So that through the cross, thereby killing, sorry, so that one, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. This is the amazing work of the gospel and display. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in chapter 2, what Paul is telling us is that God, through his grace, through his mercy, through his eternal plan for us, is creating for himself in the church a dwelling place for God. The curse of sin that we saw introduced into humanity in Genesis chapter 3, God is reversing. He's reversing through his son, the blood that he shed on the cross. And for himself in the church, God is making, he's rising up a structure for which he will be pleased to dwell in. A structure that is made up of Jews and Gentiles, right? Jews and everybody else. And the blood, this, this peacemaking God is bringing us together so that he can dwell with us. And Paul says, as I consider this mystery, what does Paul do? Bows his knees. For this reason. I bow my knees before the Father. So the first basis that Paul has for praying to God the Father here in Ephesians chapter 3 is that we see 
his redemptive plan in the church. Paul considers what God is doing in the church, and it drives him to his knees. Second basis that we see here for prayer is that Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Before the Father. Paul calls God his dad, his father. Folks, prayer doesn't come to us naturally. We learn this. Um, most of us probably already know this, can already feel this and sense this. And this is, for some of us, a daily reality, that prayer does not come to us naturally. That's why the disciples go to the Lord and say, Lord, in Luke 11, will you, Jesus, will you teach us to pray, and his response is, his response is, when you pray, say, "Our Father." This is tremendously helpful for us because it teaches us a couple things. First of all, it reminds us that we are not strangers; we are not unique as we struggle to pray. That prayer is something that Jesus has to teach us. I think it's one of the reasons why Paul includes so many prayers in his writing. Not just because he wants to see the truths that he's talking about worked into the lives of his audience, but also because he wants to show us what it looks like to pray. Okay? And if Paul has to pray, and if Jesus has to pray, Lord have mercy. Folks, we need to pray. So prayer has to be taught. As we look at his prayer, we also understand that its, its most natural way to pray is out loud. It's out loud. We don't have written down any of the prayers that were not prayed out loud in Scripture, right? These are prayers that when we read them, we pray them out loud. When you pray, say, our Father. And thirdly, most helpful to us in our context here this morning, when we pray, we pray together. And this is so, so, so critical. We pray together with Jesus, with Jesus. For when he says pray to our father, he implies that his father is their father. And if his father is their father, his father is also our father if we're in Christ. So, so the first basis of prayer is the purpose of God in redemptive history through the church. The second basis for prayer is God himself, Abba, Father. And this is how Paul bends his knee. This is who, to whom he bends his knee. And I think just as you look at Paul's prayers, it should strike us as remarkable that Paul, when he bends his knees, doesn't bend his knees to the Father for his comfort. Okay? Remember, where's he at when he's writing these words? When he's praying this prayer, Paul is in prison. These are one of, this is one of his prison epistles. Paul's life, as it were, wasn't going the greatest. It wasn't the most comfortable. It would have been tempting and easy for Paul to only consider his situation, his needs, his comfort or lack thereof. And as he bends his knees, thinks strictly about himself. And that there's nothing wrong with praying about your needs. There's plenty of evidence of that in the scripture. But in this passage, one can't help but notice the selfless nature of Paul's prayer. He bends his knees for this church, 
for these people, people who aren't in prison. He's praying for them. When I think of just even the act of bending their knees, you know, in, in, in antiquity, it would have been more common for folks to pray standing up. Right? The individuals you would have bent your knees to would be somebody like a king or a conqueror. It would be a sign of submission. So even back then, the idea of bending the knees would have been really unique. When I think of bending my knees, and I haven't completely fleshed this metaphor out, so I'm sure it fails somewhere. When I think of bending our knees today, the, mo- the first image that comes to my mind is a proposal. It is a proposal. When, when a man proposes, asks a woman for her hand in marriage. And some of the men who've been there before cannot think of a more vulnerable moment. Right? A moment when you are completely vulnerable before that woman. Your future is in her hands, potentially. You are honoring her. Right? In the exact same way, in a very similar way. When we bow our knees to the Father in heaven, we are taking our hands and essentially saying, whatever you will, let it be done. So Paul bends his knee to the Father. It's his basis for prayer. As we go on in the text, we'll see verses 7 through 9, sorry, We see in verses 17 through 19 the substance of Paul's prayer. As he bends his knees, Paul is essentially petitioning God for something. And there's four different things that he's asking for the church. He's asking that they be strengthened with the Spirit, that Christ would dwell in their hearts, that they would be rooted and grounded in Christ's love, and that they would be filled with the fullness of God. There's a sense that as he is asking for the first three things, we'll notice that there's a connecting phrase, so that or that, that connects one to the next, that it's progressively building towards a great crescendo at the very end, that they would be filled with the fullness of God. And so what I want to do just quickly is to look at each one of these different petitions that, that, that make up the substance of his prayer. Now, we have to remember that as Paul is writing these things, as he's praying for this church, he's also praying for us. He's also praying for Parkview East in 2020 here in Iowa City. He's praying for us. How do we know he's praying for us? Because if you see in verse 18, he says, in verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. So this prayer that Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus is also a prayer he's praying for us here today. And as we engage in the prayer, we pray for our church as well as all the saints. And essentially what he's saying in these four things is that this, these four things, if there's any area in your life where you're thinking, what does God want? What does he want from me? These four things we can know absolute, with absolute certainty, this is what God wants from me. So the first one, that they would be strengthened with the Spirit, that they would be strengthened with the the Spirit. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his Spirit in your inner being. Paul is not praying this strengthening through the Spirit because they lack the Spirit, okay? So he's not praying the Spirit into them. These are saints. Guess what they already got? The Spirit, right? They've already got the Spirit. He's not praying the Spirit into them. He's praying 
that they would have the Spirit and also be strengthened by the Spirit. And that the Spirit would, with them, have His way in them. We need strength, the truth is, folks, to live the life that God has called us to live. That He has saved us to. And as we consider, just take, for instance, the nature of the church. What Paul has just talked about. The reality that the Jews and Gentiles, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are coming together into one structure. As we think about just that most immediate application, the truth is to have that happen, we need strength. We need strength. And think about in, in, in Ephesians, right? The idea of them coming together, Jews and Gentiles, who had formerly been alienated, who had been separated, who were strangers from one another. As he brings them together in one unified body, one new humanity, for them to live together, it would require strength. And for us here today, it's the exact same truth. We come from different walks of life. We have different experiences. We have different backgrounds, different struggles. We are all uniquely made in his image. And as we come together and build life together... As one people, we need strength. We need strength. I think it's important to notice that the strength that we need does not come from within us. Okay? Now, if you were to just listen to sort of the popular cultural narrative, the idea is, hey, if you need strength, you've already got it. Just look within yourself. Right? Muster up the, your strength. You got this. You can do this. All right? Paul recognizes and reminds us that the strength we need is a supernatural strength that can only come from God. So as we consider the life he's called us to live, right, we are in desperate need, bending our knees before the Father that God would supply a strength through the Spirit. So that, the second one, Christ would dwell in your hearts. Again, it isn't that Christ is not already dwelling in them, for he is. But what's unique here is the, sort of the, the word choice that Paul uses. He, he, his, his choice of words in the original language spe speaks specifically to a, a permanent residence. Okay, so think your home address, not Airbnb. Okay, it's not a temporary accommodation. It is a permanent Residence, residence, not lodging. One scholar likens it to the picture of a king within his own home. And where the king dwells, he also rules. Jesus doesn't just come into our hearts so that he can soothe us and cheer us temporarily. Right? He comes in to our hearts to reign. To reign. And what Paul is praying for the saints is that Jesus would dwell in their hearts and settle down. Make it his home. You know, when Natalie, my wife, and I first got married, we or not first got married, but the first house that we bought was downtown. It was an old house built to, you know, around the beginning of the um, 1900s. So it was over 100 years old when we bought it. And it had a, it was kind of falling apart. It was plastered, you know, hanging off the walls. It was just really what we could afford. Um, it was, you know, it had kind of like no backyard, but the no backyard was our no backyard, right? It had a little carriage house that you couldn't even get 
in with a car, but that little carriage house that you couldn't get in, it was our little carriage house that you couldn't get in. You know what I'm saying? And so it was special. It was, it was ours. We moved in, and anybody who's moved into a new home knows that it takes a while. It takes time for that home to feel like your home. And so as we lived there over a period of a number of years, we saw different things with the house that we didn't like or that were falling apart that needed attention. We saw walls that maybe needed to come down and a new wall that needed to come up. And over time, that house became our house. And it reflected, if you were to walk in there, you'd see pictures of our family. It would be, it would be just a matter of seconds and you would know who lived in that house. Folks, this is exactly the same picture of when Christ dwells in us. That as he dwells in us and makes our hearts his home, our lives look more and more like him. If they don't, there's a good chance Jesus isn't sitting on the throne of your heart and is not reigning as he wants to reign. Right? As he dwells in us, Jesus settles in us, and our lives look more and more like him. And Paul tells us in Galatians 4.19 that the idea is, is that their hearts, that Christ would be formed in them. This is how many of the Puritans prayed. They prayed that, that Christ would form them and shape them so that their thoughts and that their desires and that their wants and that their longings would look like Christ's. This is his prayer for us. Thirdly, that, so they would be strengthened by the Spirit, that Christ might dwell in their hearts, that they would be rooted and grounded in Christ's love. That you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Notice the paradoxical language. That you would know that which you can't know. This new humanity, this new family of God whose members are brothers and sisters is characterized by the love both of their father and of each other. They need the power of the Spirit's strength and the indwelling of Christ to love each other the way they ought. Now it's interesting as you consider what Paul is praying for them. He's not praying that they would love each other. Again, that's an okay prayer, but it's not his prayer here. It's not his prayer that they would love God. It's not his prayer that they would love each other. It is his prayer that they would begin to grasp God's love for them. And that's where our love for him and each other starts. It starts with understanding. It's why, it's why Paul in Ephesians 2 has to tell them, this is God's grace. This is God's love. He, he tells them how much God has shown them, has demonstrated his love for them. If we want any chance at loving each other in a supernatural kind of way, it starts by understanding God's love for you. Paul uses two sort of metaphors here, combines two, that they would be rooted and grounded. There's a botanical and an architectural illustration. He wants them to, to have deep roots and firm foundations. Therefore, the life that Paul wants for them 
looks like a well-rooted tree, a well-built house. And in both cases, the source of the stability is God's love. It's God's love. This love, which we are rooted and grounded, which it originates in Christ. What a beautiful description of Christ's love he gives us. He wants us to comprehend with all the saints, folks, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know this is the size of God's love in Christ for us. Folks, the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass both Jew and Gentile. It's broad enough to encompass all of mankind. Long enough to sustain us through eternity. And deep enough to reach even the most degraded sinner. And high enough to lift them Paul says elsewhere in Romans, this love is a love that is inescapable. For I am sure that neither death nor life, when you receive this love, when you've been strengthened by his spirit, when Christ is dwelling in his heart and you begin to comprehend God's love for you in Christ, it's inescapable. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us. From the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He wants us to understand God's love for us. I think the problem many of us feel, for some of us, is an unlovableness. Right? How could God love me? I think deep down inside of each one of us, there's a time where we have to ask that question. As we consider what we have done, how we have sinned against him, against each other, how can God love us? Folks, his word comes to us this morning as a beautiful reminder that his, there's nobody in this room that God's love can't capture. It's amazing. There's a sort of a church story throughout church history that... Um, the Apostle John, who, who wrote extensively about God's love, that as he, he was one of the, the only ones who died of natural causes, and as he was um, dying, he was actually in the area of Ephesians, around the people who, you know, this church. And there's sort of a story that was told that, um, that as he, they would have to carry him to and from church. This is an apostle who, who just was captured by the love of Christ. His disciples could barely carry him to church, and he could not muster the voice to speak many words. During individual gatherings, he usually said nothing except little children love one another. The disciples and brothers in attendance annoyed because they always heard the same words, finally said, teacher, why do you always say this? And he replied with a line worthy of John, because it is the Lord's commandment. And if it alone is kept, it alone is sufficient. Folks, God loves us. And if we want any 
shot at loving each other well, it starts by receiving his love, which he demonstrates and extends to us through the death of his son. Oftentimes the cross is used as sort of a, a picture of what his love, how, how tall it reaches and how long it stretches for us. All of these things are building towards a phrase that quite honestly, like you just need to read over and over and over again. If there's one phrase in this passage that you meditate on this week, I would challenge you to meditate on this phrase. Why does he want us to know this? So that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now just if you read through this passage, you instantly see just constantly in Paul's writing the nature of the Trinity just continues to come out. The doctrine of the Trinity for Paul is not something that's a theological theory that's best left to experts and scholars, but has little significance for common church-going folk. Not at all. We've tried pointing this out throughout our study of Ephesians, but here Paul prays to the Father that the Spirit would cause Christ to dwell in their hearts. And it makes sense that Paul connects this triune activity with the fullness of God's filling. For we could say, really what Christianity is, is that we come to the Father through the Son by the help of the Holy Spirit. Don't neglect this understanding of who God is in your life. There's, there's a reason every Sunday we end with the doxology. I don't know if you've noticed it, but in the doxology, we praise God from whom all blessings flow. We praise him as the Father, as the Son, and as the Holy Ghost. In our benediction, when we go out, we go out into the world by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of God the Father, and in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. What Paul, as he prays that they would be filled with the fullness of God. Paul's prayer here, without going into much detail for the sake of time, is a prayer for their maturity in Christ. It is not enough that they have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. He wants them to be filled with the fullness of God so that they would be transformed into the likeness of his son. He is praying for a transformation that they would be a people who are transformed, who, who grow into maturity. And there's many of us here who this morning feel empty, maybe exhausted, maybe run down. And the idea that we would be filled with anything good is maybe a foreign idea to us. Paul wants us to be filled, folks, with the fullness fullness of God. What a prayer. What a prayer. What a vision. Now, I know there's many of us here who have a, a desire to reach out and to, to, to reach out into the community, to be a witness to Christ, to, to share the gospel with those. And, and I think inadvertently, but wrongly, we separate our desire to reach out and our desire from our desire to grow deep. And the Bible makes no room for that separation. 
right? The way we reach out, the way we see reformation, the way we see revival is not at the expense of our maturity. It's the result of it. As we are filled with the fullness of God, we have a chance at loving other people in a supernatural way, in bearing witness to the grace we've received. These two things are not separable. They're inseparable. It's a prayer for maturity. Finally, in his conclusion, Paul tells us actually there's a third basis for his prayer. And the third basis for Paul's prayer is in a very remarkable verse. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Some of us struggle in prayer because we question whether God can really answer our prayer. Maybe even whether God really even hears our prayer. I think deep down in dark places, as we ask of him, we doubt him. Well, I can pray like this, but God won't do it. He hasn't done it. Nothing's changed, so we stop praying. We approach the Father with an insult. We think that he's not big enough, or that he's not good enough, or that he's simply not able enough to do what we ask. Paul ends his prayer, I think, really where he starts it, with an anticipation and an expectation that God can. That God can. If Paul doesn't believe that, then he doesn't bend his knees. Paul believes that God can. He compares his ability to our, to his big ability, to the, the smallness of our imagination. More than we can ask or think. God is able to do that. We are praying to a God who can do more abundantly than even the thoughts that come into our head. For our God, there are not varying degrees of difficulty. He specializes in the impossibility. So as he gives us, Parkview East, a unique, believe it's unique, vision for what he wants to do here. We see what he wants for us, that we would be filled with him. So that God can begin to work through us. And as we think, just think for a minute, what would it look like if God were to fill his people here in Park, at Parkview East? If he fills us with his fullness, imagine 
what he can do through us. He can do far more abundantly than that. That's our God. How can we not pray to him, folks? He specializes in the impossibility. I know many of us have some impossible thoughts right now. There are people in your life who you think are out of God's reach. There may be work in this church that you think God can't do that. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. This morning, lift our heads up to the possibilities of what only God can. So one of my prayers for our church is that we are a church that prays more. That as we think and as we dream and as we imagine what God can do, that we witness him doing far more abundantly than that. So what I don't want to do is leave you with a bunch of practical how-to steps. Okay? I think... Paul wants us to just be blown away by God's ability this morning. Let it floor you. What God wants for you, all of him, a complete reversal of the curse, all of him, in all of you. For, he tells us at the very end, his glory. To him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. All of this for his glory. And he invites us to be a part of it. Let's pray. For this reason, Father, we bow our knees before you from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we may be rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of you. Now to who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.